Macaw Family Podcast. I am your host, as usual, Stephanie, but today is a little different. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. There's no one here beside me. I still haven't finished unpacking, and one of those things I have yet to find is my mix board and my other mic. So all I have today is my headset, so sorry, folks. I will have my guests back next week once I get my life all together. That might take longer than a week, but I'll be there. (laughs) So I want to thank all our supporters and listeners for stepping up after the awful review and showing us all the love. We really, really, really appreciate it. I'm really moved, and to be honest, I'm, you know, I'm loving it. I'm loving the love, if you will. So we are officially moved into our new place, and I'm loving it. You know, it's it's definitely different being away from, you know, my mom, because she was my neighbor, my sister, my niece, just being really, really close to everybody, physically, <laughs> It's different. I'm about a half an hour away now. But, you know, the place, it's great here. I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. The The place here that we're now, it feels lighter. It feels brighter and happier. Now I just have to get my whole podcast set up and then I'll, uh, I'll be all good to go. So before we get into the episode fully, I do want to cite my sources. stlmag.com fox2now.com an episode of web of lies on discovery plus i think it was season 2 episode 11 it is called hate mail also i listened to like four podcasts on the case there's a lot to this case with some serious twists and turns goops and gags so i guess we're just gonna get right into it then May 5th, 2009, Detective Sergeant Justin Barlow of the Columbia, Illinois Police Department gets a phone call at 6.42 a.m. It wasn't from the station. It was from his neighbor across the street, Christopher Coleman. His neighbor was concerned that his wife wasn't answering the phone. Chris asked him to go and check and inform the detective that he was about five minutes away and would be home shortly. Now, you may be wondering, okay, his wife isn't answering the phone. Is this really cause enough to call the police well it was and let's start from the beginning christopher coleman was born to evangelical pastors named ron and connie coleman i don't know if you know what that means but they're very much in the church and that the in the word of god to them that was it chris was raised in the church with his two brothers while they were kids it has been said that they would speak in tongues and every decision they made was based on scripture their father preached conservative versions of the Bible. And I don't I don't want to knock religion, religious parents, or people raising their kids in the church. But the way it seems uh, with Chris's parents, it was, it was one way, and that was the God way. It didn't really give them much wiggle room with wrong or right, you know, if they base all their decisions strictly on the Bible. Um, you know... I'm not, like I said, I'm not knocking anybody for raising their kids a certain way, but if it's only based on the church and how your version of how the Bible is, it kind of gets skewed a little bit. As a kid, everyone said that Chris was quiet and reserved, the most well-mannered of the Coleman boys. His mother, Connie, would say the worst curse word he would use in front of her was 
P-I-S-S. And yes, that's how she explained it, by spelling out the word piss. One day, while Chris was in high school, a Marine recruiter came in. He was struggling at the time with his identity. He had spent a lot of his time being the shadow of his parents, them being preachers, him having to be perfect. And he was really impressed with the recruiter and how the recruiter held himself. So the moment Chris was out of high school, he enlisted into the Marines. In 1997, when Chris was 22, he was in San Antonio at the Lackland Air Force Base. A, uh, he was there for a canine training seminar. At the seminar, he met a 21-year-old woman named Sherry West. Sherry was an MP in the Air Force, which is military police. Sherry was born to Donald and Angela. Sherry had graduated from Largo High School in Largo, Florida. There she had a best friend, and her name was Tara Lentz. We'll get back to her soon. Don't worry. Just put a little pin. Take it out of your little pin cushion. Put a little pin in that name, Tara Lentz. All of Sherry's friends and family have described Sherry as a fun-loving, friendly, and full-of-life person. She was loyal and always there for anyone who needed it. She met Chris. She fell in love right away. Um, they have been described at love at first sight. The first meeting with Chris's parents, though, didn't go very well. Three months after the canine training, Chris pulled up to his parents' house with Sherry in tow. Chris told his parents that Sherry was just a friend whom he was going to be giving a ride home to in Chicago. To say they weren't fans would be an understatement. In an interview later on, Ron, Chris's dad, would say, quote, We didn't pick up on anything, except she was a worldly little girl, little short shorts tattoo on her leg, not the person we thought he'd be with, end quote. This really says a lot about who Chris's parents are, because, spoiler alert, this is what they say after Sherry's death. So, if they were saying this after she died, what were they saying to people before? This is like a long list of problematic things they would say. Researching this, I have come to have a little bit of disdain for his parents. It's like they had a specific thought of how Chris was going to be and who he'd be with and that did not fit in with Sherry. Although, Sherry did become born again. She, you know, she got into the church and all that stuff. Um, Chris left to bring Sherry home to Chicago and did not come back that night. He called his family next morning and broke the news that they got married. It turned out that their perfect son, Chris, had been living in sin with Sherry and gotten her pregnant. Their first son, Garrett, was born April 30th, 1998, and two years later, Gavin was born January 25th, 2000. So, perfect church boy. Got a girl pregnant. <laughs> Pretty quickly. After leaving the Marines, Chris got a job working with Joyce Meyer. Um, I'm not sure if you know who that is, but she is a televangelicalist or TV. Oh my goodness. Uh, televangelist. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she preaches on TV. Uh, she is on that show. I think it's called like 700 or club. You can see it like later at night, like 11 when all the regular programming is off, it comes on. It's her and other pastors on like TV late at night. I haven't watched it, but I know if you like see the a screen grab of it, you know who it is. She's also the head of Joyce Meyer Ministries. She had known Connie and Rob from going to different church things, and she had known Chris since he was a young kid. 
He started working on her security team and then became her personal bodyguard. He was making at least $100,000 a year. And this is something that's been brought up a lot is about him making money and, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, the family lived in a nice two-story house on Robert Drive in Columbia, Illinois. This was a great place for the kids because they had friends all around them. It was like a cul-de-sac little area. It was definitely a great place for the kids. One of those friends was Vanessa, and she was really close with Sherry, and their kids were all friends. In fact, Vanessa's son had a close birthday to Garrett, and they would celebrate them together. Not everything was picture perfect in the Coleman house, so... Chris's job really kept him very busy, and he was away a lot. He had to go everywhere with Joyce, so like any speaking engagements, any anything like that. Even when she was doing Christ, uh, Christian missions, bringing the word of you know God to other countries, he would have to go with her too. Uh, this would cause fights at the house. Sherry really wanted Chris home, but the money was good, and Chris really looked up to Joyce a lot. He, plus, I mean, he got to travel. Who doesn't want to travel? I sure do. I could use a vacation right now. <laughs> While Chris was in Florida for one of these trips, Sherry suggested that he meet up with her good friend, Tara. Remember that place? You can take the pin out, but you're going to have to put it back again. But yeah, she suggested, hey, my friend Tara lives down there. She can show you around. You could bring her with you so she can go to church. Maybe she'd enjoy that. And why wouldn't she trust her best friend with her husband? But, spoiler alert, she put the trust in wrong people. Sherry had a feeling something was going on, and she did confide in a friend, Jessica Wade, who was assistant youth pastor at Destiny Church, where Sherry had been working. One day, she asked Jessica if she would like to see the woman her husband was having an affair with. She pulled up the Facebook, and there was Tara Lintz in all her glory. That's not all she had told her friends. She had told a friend that Chris was tired of her and the kids keeping him from God's destiny for his life, whatever that means. She also uh, told friends that if anything happened to her, Chris did it. Sherry told Chris, though, she would not divorce him. She talked to everyone in their lives and they started counseling. So Joyce knew, everybody knew that they were having trouble in the marriage, so they started counseling and it really seemed like everything was going well until November. The beginning of November is when the affair started and late November is when something else happened. That would be the catalyst for everything that's going to happen. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll get back to the rest of our story in a short minute. No, I'm sorry if I'm boring everybody. <laughs> it's not as fun if I don't have anybody to banter with. But without my equipment, I can't really banter or talk to anybody. Got my little headset on, looking out the window at all the birds. Got the cat by beside me. He's watching the birds. Mikhail's out riding his bike with the, you know, all the cool neighborhood kids. So I'm all alone, like I said. So before we get into the rest of the story, I actually want to talk about something that I didn't know about until I was writing this. In looking for the timeline for um, what we're going to be talking about soon, I found something very disturbing that 
Uh, I haven't heard it on a single podcast. I haven't heard really anywhere else. And this is the fact that November 8th, 2008, Chris takes his wife off the title of their home, leaving Chris as the sole owner of the property. It's wild. And I got that from stltoday.com, which followed the case from start to end. And um, so spoiler alert, maybe we know that um, Sherry passes away and is murdered. It's convenient that, you know, when somebody passes away, it's not convenient, but when somebody passes away, things have to go into probate, wills, this, that, and the other thing. But nothing would have to go in probate if their name wasn't on anything. So after Sherry passes away, Chris is the only person on the, the title for their house. Nothing goes to probate. He's free and clear with the house. So I think that's suspicious, personally. I think it's strange. And how nobody picked up on that before is wild. So anyways, we are at November 2008. And before we get... Um, into what happened, let's talk about what some parts of Chris's job as security was. He would go through the emails. He would check the emails for any type of threats. And apparently this happens a lot, which I'm not really surprised by, but Joyce and her family get a lot of threats, like threats to their lives, um, telling them to stop preaching the gospel, this, that, and the other thing, you know. One day an email came in, not only for Joyce, but for Joyce's son, and actually Chris himself, the email address it came from was destroychris at gmail.com. And this came on February, November 14th, 2008. And I will actually going to read that email for you right now. Subject, Chris's, fam- Chris's family, they are dead. I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you jackasses are like any other company, this will be someone's account. Pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. I know Joyce's schedule. So then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. If I don't hit them, hit there, then I will kill them during the book tour or the trip to India. I know where he lives, and I know they are alone. Fuck them all, and they will die soon. Tell that motherfucker next time to let me talk to Joyce. She needs to hear what I have to say, and now she will. So that was wild. This was different than a lot of the other emails that came through because it specifically talked about Chris, which is weird. I mean, that's not... You know, that's suspicious, but nobody really thought anything of it. Uh, There was a letter the very next day. The subject was, fuck you all. I know you all got my fucking email. You think I am full of shit? Just wait. I will shoot their asses with my 40. Kill them all. I am so sick of bitches like her taking everyone's cash so she can fly her jet and pamper her white ass. Fuck you all. Tell Chris I will kill them. He has no idea when, but it will happen. I'm sure you motherfuckers are going to try putting your pussy-ass security teams at the house or police. Whatever. I killed them, then I am coming after Chris. Then you, Danny. Then David. I may, na- may not be able to get to Joyce, but I'll get the rest of you motherfuckers. Fuck you all. I know you read these. 
Just wait, you will see. Fuck you all. Tell that bitch Joyce to give my money back and talk to me and this will all stop. Until then, everyone will die, starting with Chris's wife and kids. I know his fucking schedule. Every time Joyce is gone, he is gone. You motherfuckers are probably wondering how I got your email. You stupid fucks, just like every company. So fucking predictable. Dumbasses. So that was the email from the very next day. I just... Immediately, my my back is up about this. It just seems weird. He's, the person that's so angry is angry about Joyce. Not not about Chris's family. What is what does Chris have to do with it? You know? Typically somebody's not gonna know Chris was the one checking the emails. And it's only his family that they're concerned about killing. No nobody else's. Like I said, it it gets my back up a little bit about it. But you know, in the end, we'll see. Uh, this went on. Next thing that happened was the email stopped, but letters started showing up in their mailbox. This started happening in January 2009. Chris put up cameras and claimed to have captured somebody putting letters in, but didn't know how to upload the video or something, so it was lost. I, I don't know. He was the only one who claimed to have seen the video with the person putting this. Now, mind you, he is the head of security and the personal security guard for Joyce Meyer. He even was starting a security company, like, for cameras. He had all the equipment, and he he didn't know how to work it. Sure. So after more letters started coming, this prompted Chris... uh, This prompted Sherry to urge Chris to go to the police, because she was scared. She was alone with the kids a lot of the time and was in fear. Lucky for them, they had a nice neighbor who lived across the street named Detective Sergeant Justin Barlow. He was part of the Columbia Police Department. He offered to put a camera in his son's window, which faced the mailbox in the front of their um, yard and stuff, so they could catch who, uh, whatever was doing this. Conveniently enough, once the camera went up, the letter stopped. The last letter came on April 27th, and I'm going to actually read that for you now. Here it is. I'm giving you the last warning. You have not listened to me, and you have not changed your ways. I have warned you to stop traveling, to stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. You think you are so special to do what you do, protecting, or think you are protecting her. She is a, either a bitch or a cunt. It is blocked out and not worth your doing, doing it. So stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me ever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning and I know when you stay home. I saw you leave this morning. I'll be watching. You better stop traveling and doing what you are doing. This is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. This letter came on April 27th, like I said. So May 5th is when Chris makes the phone call to Detective Barlow saying he couldn't get a hold of his wife. But the night before that, Garrett and Gavin were playing with Vanessa's um, son. I believe his name is Brandon. And they asked if they could have a sleepover that night because, uh, like I said, their birthdays were together and they always would have a sleepover every year for their birthdays together. And this was just like any other year. This was the day, the night they would do it. So May 4th. Uh, the boys went over and asked Chris if that, you know, they could sleep over at Vanessa's house for the little birthday celebration. And he said no, which struck Vanessa as odd, but she didn't think anything of it. He told them, no, not tonight. 
and that they had to be home by 8 p.m. at the latest. So the boys went home May 4th that night, and then we get to May 5th. May 5th, 2009, at 6.42 a.m., Detective Barlow was woken up by a cell phone ringing. He had actually just gone to bed around 3 because his six-month-old son was having trouble sleeping. It was Chris on the phone. Chris tells Barlow that he's tried to call Sherry on his way to the gym to wake her up, but she didn't answer. He then texted her when he got to the gym. Again, no answer. He was trying again on his way home. She didn't answer, and that's why Chris was calling Detective Barlow, because he was worried. He told Barlow he was on his way home and should be there in five minutes. But could Barlow go and check on his family? So Detective Barlow did what he did. He grabbed his radio and all his gear and called her back up and went to check on the family. He knocked on the door and got no answer. That's when his backup arrived in Jason Donjon. As Barlow stays in the front, Officer Donjon goes to the back and radios to Barlow, letting him know that there's a screen out um, in one of the basement windows. They radio for more backup and enter the home through the open window in the basement. So let's pause for a second so we can chit-chat about what's happened so far just within this little since 6.42, May 9th. Chris wakes up in bed, I'm going to assume, with his wife, right? He then leaves and heads to the gym. As he's driving out of the driveway, calls to wake her up, but she doesn't answer. Why not? Why didn't he just wake her up when he left, right? Just tap her on the shoulder as you're walking out the door. Like, hey, babe, time to get up. Sherry spent every day getting the kids ready and together for school for whatever she needed to do. It was her job, not her, you know, mother's job is never done, right? And honestly, if he was so concerned, why didn't he stop and turn around? Why did he continue on to the gym? Why did he continue on with his workout? You know, who he's so concerned, yet he stays to work out. That doesn't even make any sense. If you're so worried, wouldn't you rush home to check on your family? I don't know. It seems really, 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 really problematic to me. But, you know, I'm just a podcaster. (laughs) All right. So back to our regularly scheduled telling of this terrible and horrific story. So as the officers head up the stairs from the basement, they are immediately hit with a strong smell of spray paint. When they get up to the first floor, they see what was causing the smell. It was red spray spray paint all over the walls with different sayings on one wall it said quote you have paid unquote Uh, another part said i am always watching quote unquote and heading up the stairs were the words punished Uh, at 656 chris finally shows up at the same time as the backup arrives this is 13 minutes later after the phone call five minutes to 13 minutes is a big difference when you think you're, something's going on with your family. We'll get into that time uh, weirdness after. Well, I should say next week because, spoiler alert, this is a two-parter, folks. Um, yeah, five minutes, he says he's going to be there. But it takes him 13 minutes. The officer that showed up, Steve Patton, tells Chris to wait outside as he goes into the house. 
The officers head up the stairs single file, uh, all with their guns drawn because they're not sure what's, you know, they're going to see up there or run into. And as they're going up the stairs, they're following red spray paint. So the next is going to be a trigger warning for everyone. Um, it's going to get pretty heavy. It's going to have um, some crazy heavy stuff. So just I want everybody to be prepared. There's obviously murders, but they're child murders. And those always hit, hit real different than, you know, I mean, murders fucking terrible as it is but this is just fucking heartbreaking uh don john heads towards the master bedroom batten heads to another room and barlow towards another because you know it's three bedrooms barlow was the first to come upon someone he finds garrett garrett a week after his 11th birthday was found lying in his bed and as barlow puts it he looked like he was asleep but when uh, Barlow gets closer, he could see Garrett's skin was gray and spotty, I guess would be the worst. He called him, I think. He could tell. Um, his cold, he was cold. And um, Garrett's limbs were rigid, as rigor mortis had already said him. Don John calls uh, from the master saying he found Sherry. Um, also in the same state, you know, gray, except for, um, it looked like she was beaten up. She was laying uh, off the bed a little bit with her head off, hanging off the bed. And at that moment, Batten found Gavin, looking just like his brother, you know, sleep, but not asleep. And on one of the boys' beds, I don't remember which one, I believe it was Gavin, where the words, fuck you, written in spray paint on the comforter. I mean, what type of psychopath does that? And obviously, the person who did this had, he was trying to cover up what he did by making it seem like it was something else, but we'll get into that next week. How Sherry and the boys were murdered was very up close and personal. Sherry and the boys were strangled with some type of a ligature. Um, and actually, one of the boys had um, a, some pieces of his mom's hair near his neck. Like, the person that did this used the uh, same ligature for all of them. The boys didn't put up a struggle. There were no real signs of it, but Sherry did. She put up a fight, and like I said, she had a black eye. Sherry, in the end, was a fighter, which uh, would come to no surprises to her family. When the threats to her family by the letters and emails came, she actually ended up purchasing a gun and kept it in her side drawer. She could handle herself, and um, her fight came I think towards the end of trying to stop what was happening because the person that did this to her was somebody she trusted with her life and her son's lives I don't you know she was fighting for her life because I don't know if she knew what was going to happen to the boys but she put up a fight the officers on scene had a feeling Batten looked at Barlow and said this might be our guy limit 
what we tell him, and they all agreed. Barlow went outside and let Chris know that the family didn't make it, and he was asked to stay outside. He didn't argue, he didn't protest, or he didn't even ask what happened. He just sat down, kind of cried, and called his dad. The chief had shown up by now, and he was uh, Joe Edwards, Chief Joe Edwards. He sat next to Chris while the police chaplain, Jonathan Peters, was there to, to formally tell Chris that his family had been killed. As the media starts to come around like they always do, the chaplain ushered Chris into the ambulance to get out of the, the way of the cameras so nobody would be yelling at him, kind of like asking what the deal is, da-da-da-da-da. While they were sitting there, the chaplain looks down and notices there are scratches all over Chris's arms. Once Chris's, Chris notices his arms and notices the chaplain notices his arms, he starts banging his fist on the pillow of the gurney. The pillow. The chaplain will later testify to this, but we'll get into the trial next week. At this point, uh, Chris's father had arrived to be with him as well as his pastor and even Joyce Meyer. He has a big backing to help him with this. And uh, some of those people stay backing Chris forever. And uh, you'll see why that irritates me. Before long, he is asked to come to the police station to talk about what happened and to get the story of the day. Barlow and Bevins are the ones signed to interview Chris. At this point, although it is said that between the other officers that they may think he has something to do with it, they all treat him as a witness and not a suspect. Yet. Chris was sat down in a small gray room at the Columbia Police Department. He was still wearing the clothes he went to the gym in, a t-shirt with the sleeves cut off like the cool guy he is, and gym shorts. He claimed to be cold, but when the detectives brought him in a blanket, the only thing he covered were his, was his arms, where the scratches were. It was like he was trying to hide the fact that he was covered in scratches all over his arms. He went through his morning with the detectives. He told them he got up at 5.30 a.m., went to the bathroom, got dressed, and then left for the gym. He then told him, quote, as I drove away, I called Sherry to wake her up and get her going, and she didn't answer. And he takes kind of a pause right there, and he's like, of course. You know, meaning like, well, she must have been dead? I don't know. He goes on to say, so I went on to the gym. I called her again and on the way back, and she didn't respond. So that's when I called you, unquote. In my opinion, there's a lot to be said about the whole situation with him leaving as soon as he's out of the driveway and calling her. Like, that's when she needs to be woken up. He could have tapped her on the shoulder, woken her up, but he had to concoct this whole story of calling her on the way to the gym. If he's worried, why didn't he turn around? Why didn't he go home and check on things? It doesn't make any sense, and it makes him kind of look like he's trying to think of an alibi. Also, the fact it took him 13 minutes after calling, calling Barlow to show up to check on Sherry... Why did it take him so long to get home? Like he was waiting for somebody to else to find her? So that's where we're going to leave it. Until next week. Sorry, everybody. But this case kind of gets <clears throat> more complicated during the trial and everything during the interrogations. There's a lot, a lot to this case. In researching, I found out like, a ton of stuff and I want to make sure that I do a good job for Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett. They deserved so much more than what they got from their murderer. You know, 
Sherry was an amazing mother and a woman and she had her whole life ahead of her that all was cut short those poor boys didn't get to experience so much and they were taken before they lived their lives my heart goes out to the family of Sherry and those precious boys as you will see next week the people in this case who did the crime and who stood by the murderer didn't make it easy on the family of Sherry Gavin and Garrett so I want to thank you all for listening as always, check out all of our socials, Macabre Family on Instagram. We are the Macabre Family Podcast on Facebook and TikTok. You can shoot us an email at macabrefamilypod at gmail.com, and that's M-A-C-A-B-R-E-F-A-M-I-L-Y-P-O-D at gmail.com. And shoot it, you know, any questions, show ideas, anything. Please also rate and review us everywhere you can. Spotify has a review app or rating app, and so does Apple Podcasts, and it really, really helps um, get us in the algorithm, get us more people to listen, and that would be amazing. We'll be back next week with my whole setup and my guest, so I will be, you know, kind of going over the story quickly with her again even though she listens to it. Hi, Mom. And then I'll uh, go over the interrogations and everything the police found out and the trial and then the appeal and then what happened after all of that. Like I said, it's pretty complicated. It's pretty crazy. And um, like I said, again, my heart goes out to the family of Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett. Um, I hope that they have found peace after all this, but... The story is it's wild, it's crazy, and it's very, very complicated. So, as always, stay spooky, my macabre family. Mm-hmm.